Three rings for elfin kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Welcome to Frodo Lives, a podcast where we read and discuss the Lord of the Rings one chapter at a time. I'm your podbearer, John. And I'm his sidekick, Jimmy. And we are talking about The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 1, A Long Expected Party. Mm. How you doing, John? I'm great, Jimmy. I'm so excited to be starting this. This this is, I, I, this is big. I, I'm so excited for this. I am ready for this. I've been getting ready for this mentally like for the this has been in the works friends for at least six months we've and we before that we've been toying with this notion for a long time but like became real about six months ago like okay this is the next thing and now we're here and i'm like okay let's do this and i'm very excited john yeah, uh, if you haven't uh, listened to us before, if this is your first experience with us as podcasters, um, we spent the last year doing uh, a podcast called Jacob Marley is Dead, where we were watching and reviewing various adaptations of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And we hope to transfer uh, some of the ideas uh, that we came up with during that show as we move into another piece of literature that is super important to the two of us, which is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Jimmy, how old were you when you first read lord of the rings well i started with the hobbit uh back in 2001 september right before the movies were coming out um Mm -hmm. i have uh dyslexia so um, teachers were always looking for an opportunity to get me into reading and that summer was a big like big summer for me because i was just reading comic books for the first time really starting to read a lot more there and then my teachers like okay what about this and they gave me a copy of the hobbit and I started reading that along with the audiobooks. And I would read the pages as I would listen to the words. And that was the first time I had ever met Mr. Tolkien. And it was so interesting to immediately catch on to something that would totally like be I felt like it was made for me. Like I felt like this is my type of fantasy. This is the type of uh adventures I like to read about. And the lore as I would get further along with it. So after reading the Hobbit, I immediately started to read uh, fellowship of the ring and fellowship. I got done right before I saw the movie in 2001. And that began me reading in between the movies, the next movie, the next book. And uh, yeah, it was quite a, quite a journey uh, to, to discover this adventure. How old were you, John? So I was, that's funny. I think I was reading it around the same time because I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings right before the movies came out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was 11 
when I, I read was, the Lord of the Rings. I was 14. I forgot to mention that. I was I was 14 at the time. Yeah. Um, Dirty Little Secret, that is the only time I've read the Lord of the Rings all the way through. Ooh. See, now this is where we differ because I reread them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I would say, like, if anyone asked me, right, and for context, I'm 32 years old as of yesterday. Um, if anyone asked me, like, John, what's your favorite book? I would be like, Lord of the Rings. No question. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. I'd be like, Lord of the Rings. But it's a book that I haven't read all the way through since before I was even a teenager. Like, I was really young when I read those books, probably too young to really grasp, like, everything that was going on. Well, that's part of the book's strengths. You, it, can, it can appeal to different generations on different levels, um, like Chronicles of Narnia. You know, yeah. there's deeper stuff going on there that... But if you just are a young child, you just get like the the fantasy and the adventure, the weird characters. And that's the same thing going on here with Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. More so with The Hobbit. The Hobbit does skew a little bit younger. And right. mm-hmm. it's I, in fact, today I gave a student a copy from the library of The Hobbit. And I was like, you should probably read this with your parents as like a nighttime, like a little bit here, a little bit there chapter book. But The Lord of the Rings, if the older you get and the more you uh, reread and or as you're older, read it for the first time, you can really appreciate how how much is going on with this narrative. Yeah, yeah, it's really wild. So the fun story with me and The Hobbit is I was homeschooled. Um, so at that time, there was some book that I was supposed to be reading for school that uh, was super boring and dumb and I didn't like it. Like it was really driving me crazy to read this book. And I was just, I was like a voracious reader when I was a kid and I would just read like anything that I was interested in reading. But if you gave me a book and told me I had to read it, it was like the, it was like torture. I hated it. And what's funny is around that same time, someone had given my mom this copy of The Hobbit that had this gorgeous illustration of this giant like red and gold dragon on the cover on like a hoard of gold right that was my copy yeah yeah we probably read like a similar one and i was like i i have to read this book and i had friends at the time who were like really into lord of the rings and had started talking about it because the movie was about to come out and stuff Mm -hmm. so it was like really in the zeitgeist but i wasn't allowed to read it until i finished the book that i was supposed to read for school and like the the second i finished that book i picked up the hobbit and i feel like it, the Hobbit was one of those books that I would read until like four o'clock in the morning and then be super exhausted the next day because that was just like such an incredible fantasy, like totally changed the way that I thought about um, literature and the kinds of stuff that I was interested in reading. And then obviously right after that, I picked up Lord of the Rings. I was like, yeah. I have to I have to know what happens next. I have to know what happens. And the the this twist of like the ring is evil and all this stuff was just it was so mind blowing to me. And here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I kind of knew about that before I finished The the Hobbit. Like, I knew The Ring was very important. But if you read The Hobbit, The Ring is important. And they do make it, like, a big deal when Bilbo finds The Ring. And we're going to get into Bilbo and The Ring in this chapter. But, my goodness, it's, it's such a shock when you find out what's going on with that ring and what Bilbo was playing around with that whole time and think about this we get that pretty quickly now because you you, if you finish the hobbit you can just pick up lord of the rings right away there's no wait there was a gap of many years in between the original publication of the hobbit and the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring so that's like kids grew up with the ring just being like this 
little fun thing that Bilbo had, and now it's the One Ring. What a change up! Yeah, yeah, it's pretty magical. Um, so part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast was to like really give myself an excuse to read these books again as an adult because I I have tried many times to pick them up, and I have always been like. I've read this already. I've seen the movies a hundred times. I love everything about this, but there's just like other stuff that I want to read right now, or I don't have the time or the mental space, like whether it was when I was in college or now I'm like working in, in education. And um, I, I really just got to a point. I just read the Silmarillion and it, it recontextualized. Like I knew a lot of the stuff kind of by osmosis of like, sorry, John, I'm applauding you because you finished the Silmarillion. Well, Good. listen, <laughs> Um, and I, but I really enjoyed it because I've 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 given the Silmarillion attempts ever since I read the Lord of the Rings and have always been stymied by it because it's so dense. And this is the first year where I like really just had the mental space to sit down with it and read the whole thing. And it recontextualized so much more of the Lord of the Rings than I expected it to that I really had this desire to go back in and and find a way to read Lord of the Rings in a really close and analytical way and really pick apart the way that all of his myths of like the the start of Arda and of Beleriand that you see in the Silmarillion are embedded in the work that he does in Lord of the Rings. Well, and that's the thing. What what the Silmarillion is, is basically a origin myth for the entire universe that Tolkien created. In fact, when he would talk about the Silmarillion, he was talking about creating a world. And that was his bigger thing going on. And then through the creating the Silmarillion or working on it over the years, he got to a point where he wanted to tell stories about that world. And that's where the Hobbit comes from. And that's where a few other ideas were played around with or tested out there, but not really connected to it, but were could, could be connected to it. And then eventually coming to its map, it's amazing end point and masterpiece, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about Tolkien uh, as as an author, um, because I think uh, I was doing some research on him to kind of prepare for this. And it it really helped to recontextualize some of my understanding about the choices that he makes in The Lord of the Rings. And um, I, I knew like a lot of pieces of his biography from just kind of reading about him over the years. But this is the first chance I've had to get sort of a complete picture of what his life was like. Mm. Um, so we'll talk through that and then uh, we'll get into our discussion of the first chapter of Fellowship of the Ring. So John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born in 1894 in the Orange Free State, which is actually a part of South Africa. Um, it was annexed later by the British Empire. Today, it's the Free State Province in, in the Republic of South Africa. Mm. Yeah, this is still kind of that colonial period of the British Empire. So, yeah. so it's, in the, it's in the dying days, but it's still very strong in certain parts of the world. And uh, Tolkien's born into that reality. And I think that's something to keep in mind when we look at his works. Yeah, yeah, I think we definitely see that kind of like global influence on some of the things that he's going to do in Lord of the Rings. Um, fun fact, when he was there, he was bitten by a baboon spider, which is like a, a fairly venomous tarantula. Um, so you're telling me there's a reason he doesn't like spiders, huh? <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why like a, a giant spider in the Silmarillion is literally like a, a symbol of the outer darkness. Uh, that's a very potent image for him. 
I mean, that makes sense. I mean, there's the only other thing could have been like a serpent or something like that, but that's more Norse. And he was trying to create something that was familiar, but unique with the Silmarillion. But yeah. we're not here to talk about Silmarillion all day. Yeah, no, <laughs> we'll talk about it quite a bit. I have a feeling, but oh yeah. Um, so uh, there was a, a time when he was around three that his mother had taken him and his brother back to England, visiting family. And uh, his father died unexpectedly around this time. So his mother ended up remaining in England um, and raised them there. She converted to Catholicism, which sort of moved her away from her Baptist family. Um, and they like lost touch with that part of the family around that time. Uh, obviously, um, anyone who's familiar with Tolkien knows that he was a very staunch Catholic, that that was a very major uh, part of his life and beliefs and and the things that he even that he wrote in Lord of the Rings. Um, tragically, his mother would then die when he was around 12 of acute diabetes, which she was in her 30s at that time, which was about what your life expectancy was at the turn of the century before the uh, discovery of insulin. God, what 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 a mad world. Like, mm-hmm. I hear people sometimes talk about the good old days or something like that. Not that this is the good old days for anybody still with us for the most part. But like, I I just it, it just it's, it's, it's insane when you go back and look at all the tragedy that are connected with like yeah. the lack of medicine and, of course, a lot of other things going on. Yeah, really awful. Um, so Tolkien and his brother were raised by a father, Francis Xavier Morgan, who is a family friend. Um, their mother basically entrusted them into his care. And he was pretty formative. Like this guy was basically Tolkien's father figure for all of his young adult life. Mm. Um a lot of his beliefs and his worldview were really shaped by growing up under this guy's care. Um And it was during this sort of period, this formative time in his life during his teens, that he and several of his cousins began to create their own languages. So they were in school, they were studying Latin, they were studying Anglo-Saxon, and they just began to develop these secret little languages for each other, which is basically a hobby he would have until the day he died, was creating languages. Nerd. I love this man. I love, like, think, like... That's the nerdiest of stuff. And it's, but it, but it, but by doing it and working at it and practicing and getting better at it, he takes that thing that really doesn't have any use outside of, hey, look what I could create to my friends and uses it in the Lord of the Rings. And yep. these languages he practices on gives him the skill to create new languages in the his works and names in his work. That, that would be a big part about how he would be able to name characters. Fantastic. If you uh, if you think that is nerdy, he and some of his teen friends created a secret society when they were in high school called the Tea Club and Barovian Society, which was basically based on their their affinity for drinking tea in a a uh, specific department store that had kind of like a cafe set up. Um, and they were just like this teenage nerdy tea drinking upper class British uh poetry society uh he came out of this with just this love for poetry it really developed his interest in in uh language as an art form yeah very early on he's just so like chill (laughs) and just hanging with his buddies and it's it's also a good base for where we get to with certain communities in lord of the rings and like certain cultures like just 
just take things easy. You know, it's okay. Just relax, have, have some fun, read a poem, drink some tea or have some pipe weed. You know, you're okay. Yeah. Do your thing, man. Um, uh, he also, it was during kind of this time that he took a, a pretty formative uh, vacation to Switzerland where he did some mountain climbing. And uh, he has since claimed that certain elements of their journey across this mountain range inspired Bilbo's journey across the Misty Mountains. And and very specific moments from The Hobbit are kind of embedded in um, that journey that he took uh, and sort of the memories that he had of, of crossing the Alps. Well, anytime you have a memory like that and you're a creative person, you try, you, at least I find I tend to put that into my art, you know, like if yeah. I, if something that is just, it imprints on you in a way that's like, well, that's got to be used somewhere or it's going to get used. Maybe I don't even recognize it until later on. Yeah. I think as someone who has like, since reading Lord of the Rings has dabbled in writing his own fantasy fiction, I'm always jealous of people who live in Europe because you just have such a dramatic fantasy like terrain in some of these places. And I often think I'm just like, it's so hard in like, like, you know, Eastern Pennsylvania to find anything until you hit like, you know, the Alleghenies or something like that. Look, it's there. It's and and this is. We're not going to get into our fantasy novels, but I think there is something to be found in the darkness of America. <laughs> okay, yeah, oh, like certainly, the, certainly. There's, there's some there's some fantasy to be have there. There's some stuff going on. So the next major phase of of uh, Tolkien's life starts around uh, when he was 16. Um, at this time, he meets his future wife Edith, also an orphan, just like him. She was three years older than him. Um, when they met. So she was 19 years old and uh, they had just this like really frequent correspondence. They spent a lot of time talking together. Um, They were able to sort of bond over the struggles of being orphans and find kind of solace in each other's company. Um, And it, ended up impacting his studies quite a bit. And she was also from a Protestant family, which wasn't uh, the greatest thing for his, his guardian, uh, the, the, the priest, father Morgan. So he was forbidden from speaking to her until he turned 21 um, at a certain point. And I think he broke that correspondence a few times, at least from what he said. But um, when he turned 21, he ended up sending her this letter. And at that time, she had already accepted a proposal from someone else because because of this estrangement that they had, the sort of forced estrangement, she didn't know if he was still interested in what was going on. But as soon as she got his letter, she basically told the other guy, take a hike because this changes everything. And uh, the two of them were, were engaged and married at that point. That's awesome. That's that. That's I haven't seen the Tolkien movie, but that's gotta be in there. Like I, imagine. I, yeah. I heard it got bad reviews or was trying to be something it can't be, but like it was bad, John. I haven't seen it. It would be interesting to talk about it here on the show at some point. Possibly, yeah. It's just I these those are the moments I'd like to see in that. Like their, that's beautiful. Their love story is is honestly like as I was reading it, it's just like one of the mo- it, it it's so appropriate to someone who writes basically heroic romances for the rest of his life. Like the the nature of their relationship and the and the the romance in the story because eventually, right at the time, obviously we we are charging into one of the darkest periods of modern history which is world war one and here's this guy he's 21 years old right at the advent of this war um Mm -hmm. he uh 
was not initially interested in joining up to kind of the dismay of a lot of his family and friends. Obviously, a lot of young men were very nobly, you know, f- going to fight for the cause in the trenches. And, and there was a lot of patriotism built up around that senseless and idiotic war. No, that was go. That was all over Europe at the time. Everybody was joining up, and the war would be over in a few weeks. Our side couldn't lose. Everybody was so confident, and it then became the the tragedy of the twenty twentieth century. Yeah. Um. So he he was at Exeter College at the time, and he was able to delay possible deployment until he received his degree. So he graduated with honor with excuse me he graduated with honors in it with a degree in English language and literature. Um. And then he was uh, enlisted, and he uh, deployed as a as an officer in France. Um. Whew. Yeah, not not great. So during his deployment, um, it, he was pretty miserable. He was, you know, he was kind of a nerdy academic, not a fighter, not a violent guy. It was not where he wanted to be. And um, he found a great affinity for the working class men who were under his command. And he was obviously like of a slightly higher class. Um, but the thing about this war in the trenches is it really brought everyone down to a similar level. And although the officers were discouraged from forming friendships with the the men under their command, he he found himself pushing back against that and and really found this affinity for these just like rural, simple country boys who were thrown into this situation that they had no understanding of and like i i could not help when i was reading this biography but think about like the way that he puts the hobbits in this like simple agrarian culture at the heart of this conflict and makes them the real heroes of the piece well because i think he saw that with these tommies in the trenches who were just senselessly giving their lives for this call, co- this war that none of them could possibly understand, something that was much bigger than them and yet made no sense whatsoever. And like that's, yeah, I th- and and you see that with our fe- our fe- our friendly hobbits in the novel ahead, and also you see that with just small acts of heroism and small people in insane situations, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. places where. And we'll get into this. This is really about two eras meeting at one point and rising up to a challenge that you have no right to even attempt. And that's what he and that's what he was seeing every day in the trenches, you know, and all the other madness that went along with that, like Mm -hmm. the acts of heroism. Yes, but also. The horrors of war like (sighs) World War One is go. I don't know if you want to, but if you ever are interested, be prepare yourself. That is just a sad, sad scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awful. Um, so Tolkien, Tolkien survived the war largely because um, he, the, the battalion he was in was so infested with lice uh, that he ended up contracting trench fever, which is basically, it was a fever, an infection that was carried by these lice at the time. And it was so bad that they had to remove him from the battlefield. Um, He was basically deemed um, unfit for service at that time. He spent the rest of the war between hospitals and like on garrison duty. Um, uh, Several members of the, the secret society that he formed with his high school um gang would die thereafter in battles at like the Somme. Um 
so. a lot of like really major conflicts. Almost his entire battalion would be wiped out um, after he left the front. So we very nearly just lost him. He was one of the he very, very nearly was one of the just the nameless bodies that were piled up in the midst of that war. And think about that. We 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 d- almost lost him. Who did we lose? Yeah. You know, like that's that's the great horror tragedy of war. Like all the could have beens, all the lives that would have or could have been developed and it's just they're they're lost and all that goes along with it. I mean, imagine like I really think about this like it it brought into perspective how much influence this guy has had on like modern fantasy. I look at Warcraft. I look at um uh, I look at uh, the Elder Scrolls. I look at Warhammer. I look at like all these things that are like these cornerstones of fantasy nerd culture that absolutely would not exist if he hadn't sat down and looked at all this mythology and thought, I'm going to bring this all together. So um, I'll move through the rest of this pretty quickly because we're going to get up to him writing Lord of the Rings fairly shortly after this. He um, it was during the time that he was sort of in recovery in these hospitals that he started working on at the time what he imagined as a um, uh, sort of a fantasy mythology for Great Britain that didn't really exist. Right. And he called it the Book of Lost Tales. Obviously, this is something that we would see. transfer into the Silmarillion. Uh, one of the things that he wrote initially was the fall of Gondolin. That was like an, uh, one of the very earliest things that he wrote. We see some of it in unfinished tales. Some of it I'm sure would end up in Lord of the Rings. So even at this time, like he's, he's barely, you know, into his adulthood, he'd already started to kind of conceive this. Um, he left the army in 1920 and he worked first as a language historian for the Oxford English dictionary. Um, working kind of with like the roots of Germanic words. And then uh, he became an English professor at the University of Leeds. Eventually, he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Pembroke College, which I believe is part of of Oxford. Um, It's during this time, you know, big things start to happen. He would befriend a bunch of authors and theologians, including c.s lewis right mm-hmm. his very close friend c.s lewis who he was responsible for converting to christianity from atheism uh so we can thank tolkien basically for the chronicles of narnia um, and for a lot of stuff you know yeah yeah the, the space trilogy you were telling me about like oh yeah the space trilogy is another good one um so he they Tolkien and Lewis and and many other authors, this was a fairly big group, formed this literary discussion group called the Inklings. Um, the Inklings are really famous for kind of enthusing about narrative fiction. Um, in particular, the writing of fantasy was kind of a really common theme with a lot of these guys. Um, and they would be, the Inklings would provide him a lot of help and support eventually when he was writing Lord of the Rings as that began to develop. And that, and you and you need you need that support when you uh, again just real quick if you're building a world and you're going in deep into this type of stuff you need to have friends to be like hey is this insane like am yeah. I creating something that is completely off the walls and they were probably like no this makes sense or hey that wouldn't do that and you take some advice you don't take some advice and you get what you get. Um, he was really famous during this time for his analysis of Beowulf. He wrote a translation of Beowulf around this time. He delivered some pretty formative lectures that really changed the the academic 
um, kind of tone around that text at the time. And he drew a lot from Beowulf in writing The Hobbit, in writing The Lord of the Rings, in writing his other fantasy works, that same kind of um, mythologic tone and the fantasy elements. The word orc, um, most people believe he pulled initially from Beowulf. Uh, It's a a word that came up I think for demon or something like that in Beowulf I was reading today. Um, He had this enduring love for language since his youth, obviously. And um, (laughs) to the extent that his, his actual output as a professor, like the papers and stuff he was able to write were fairly uh, skimpy because he spent so much time working on developing Sindarin and Quenya, like the Elvish languages, which were probably the two he most fully developed, but also a bunch of other languages for his world. And, and um, most of his writing, like he really believed that there was this connection between language and mythology that in order to understand the roots of like mythological stories and cultures, you had to look at kind of the way that their languages worked and developed because those two things were so intermixed. And with that is the gateway to everything in Tolkien. Like it, yeah. it, it sounds simultaneously simple and like obvious, but, but that's because it's such the key to it, right? Like, mm-hmm. He's like I said earlier, he was able to create names that don't sound phony because he was able to use the language and the and the world to support the language there. So he would say, okay, well, somebody would have this descendancy from this region. They would have this type of name. And look, I know I've said it twice already, but that's a big factor in trying to create a world that you can believe in. Stupid sounding names stop stories dead in their tracks. These names get pretty close. These names get a little silly once in a while, but never to the point where you don't believe that in that world, in that part of the world, that is a completely acceptable name and a real name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So during his time at Pembroke College, uh, he would write The Hobbit. Famously, he would scribble down, you know, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit on on the corner of some paper that he was grading. And then it evolved initially into a story that he was just writing for his children. He and his wife had several children. um, Mm. And... It, it sort of accidentally fell into the hands of someone who worked for a publishing house who read it and then pushed him like, you have to get this thing published, like submit this for publication. This is really, really good. So he never really I don't know if he eventually planned to publish it or what the story was at that time when he wrote it. He was not seeking publication for it. It was just something that he wrote that he thought his kids would enjoy. And as so often happens with this, it was just sort of serendipitously. It ended up getting published in 1936 it was a huge hit his publishers immediately asked him for a sequel to it and so he took about a decade and he wrote the lord of the rings <laughs> what a sequel like that's like godfather part two's got nothing on lord of the rings just like let's be honest here it wasn't yeah. a, it wasn't a star wars thing where he wrote lord of the rings then went back and did the hobbit no it was just the natural progression of this universe and wow it's it's a tone shift it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's a gutsy choice for a lot of things going on here like what because it's like I said earlier, it's not as young. It doesn't aim as a young audience as, as the Hobbit does. And that's because he was still writing it for his kids. He was now writing it for his old kids as they grew up. 
So it's funny you should mention that he initially did conceive it as another children's book. And that's where you get the sort of tone of those initial chapters, right? Mm -hmm. They're a little more whimsical. Tom Bombadil is an artifact from a time when this was definitely like a sequel to The Hobbit and not like a a thing that sort of stands on its own Mm -hmm. um, as we're going to see moving forward. And then as he started working on it, it just uh, it sort of organically involved in this darker direction. And he began to bring in all of this mythology that he had been conceiving for, um, you know, his myths about Beleriand and the origins of the world and Numenor and and all these things. So it, it was this perfect marriage of like, he had one thing that was like the Hobbit. It was simple. It was, fun magical um just a romp and an adventure and then he had all this other mythology and deep heady stuff and he was like oh here's a place where i can start to bring these two things together which is part of why it took him such a long time it was also world war ii you know happened in the middle of all that no no big deal just another world war um <laughs> two world wars in one life golly yeah. and yeah and also part of that time was he had to go back and revise The Hobbit mm-hmm. because when he originally wrote The Hobbit, The Ring was more innocent. It was yeah. not mm-hmm. it, it was not as tempting and we'll get into what The Ring can and cannot do. But like he had to be like, this would not exist in the world I'm creating for Lord of the Rings. I've got to go back and change the entire introduction and the situation around The Ring. Yeah. And here's the genius of Tolkien. Not only does he do it, but he justifies it, as we'll learn soon, in universe. And yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is really, really, it's it's really clever the way that he does it. Um, so initially he had planned to try to publish this as like one big book. The Lord of the Rings is really supposed to be read as one one complete narrative. Um, but obviously we're, we're talking about Britain in the aftermath of World War II. There's a lot of rationing going on. Um, paper was not necessarily available to print these massive, massive books. So it was released in three volumes between 1954 and 1955 as The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. Um, again, a big hit. It was hugely popular through the 60s, the counterculture movement where we basically have gotten our podcast name from really latched onto it right frodo lives was like a counterculture catchphrase frodo lives <laughs> somebody said like that one time absolutely <laughs> um and it's basically continued to influence the fantasy genre up until the present day um he was able to retire uh in 1959 and eventually like afterwards he said i wish i had retired earlier because the books were so profitable they basically made him like a minor celebrity um with their success um he and his wife eventually had to move away from where they were living and like retire because uh the the public um kind of attention that he was receiving was so overwhelming that he just had to get out and get away um so he would eventually uh die in uh, 1973, <laughs> at the age of 81. Oh, he did um, do that. Okay. <laughs> he, he, I don't know why I said it that way. But he 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 um he died in 1973. He was 81 years old. Just 21 months after his wife's death, they died very close together. Um, 
the my favorite fact about them is that on their gravestones it has their names and then under his name is baron and under her name is luthien because she's the inspiration for luthien in his baron and luthien story um who are figures that will come up as we read lord of the rings (laughs) it's 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 the it's the great legend of that world like we'll get into it more but like that's gonna be that john's right that's gonna come up a lot yeah yeah um and obviously uh his work has endured um a lot of stuff that went kind of unfinished and unpublished uh was sort of carefully put together by his son christopher tolkien um who who we lost uh, earlier last year did is that when he passed away yeah Um, i believe so so a really big loss to the whole community but uh he worked really tirelessly his whole life to preserve and defend the legacy of his father's work um he published unfinished tales the silmarillion the fall of gondolin uh children of hurin baron and luthien a a number of other pieces there's a whole 12 volume set of books called the history of middle earth which is basically like a chronicle of all of sort of the versions and revisions of Lord of the Rings that Tolkien was working on. It gives us a really complete picture of how he conceived and imagined this work. And it's interesting to see how some ideas uh, start out and then where he gets to by the end of the process with certain characters uh, who maybe initially start out with, you know, less than noble intentions. But by the end of it, like I'm talking about the two blues here, like like by the end of it, or maybe they did something right. You know, like it's interesting how he... uh, how he changes things over time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about a lot of that on the show. Yeah. We will talk about that quite a bit on the show. Um, that's the story of Tolkien. That's the guy that we're dealing with. That's the guy who conceived of and created this world. It was basically the work of his, of the latter half of his life. Tolkien was, is, is a name to be reckoned with in literature. Yeah, most certainly. Most certainly. Um, I, Jimmy, I think we should reckon with it. Let's reckon. All right. All right. So what we are going to move into now, this is going to be kind of the the meat and potatoes of this podcast. We're going to we've both read the first chapter of Fellowship of the Ring, a long expected party. Mm -hmm. And we are going to talk through the events of that chapter, give you our reactions, give you our thoughts on it. Um, So let's get into it. This is Frodo Lives. And we are talking about chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring, a long expected party. All right, we begin where the Hobbit started in the Shire, yes. in the in the far uh, west of the continent known as Middle Earth, mm. in the region called Eriador. There's this little farmland area, the verdant, peaceful land known as the Shire, and the Shire is peopled by the Hobbits. The hobbits, who are going to be our our kind of main focal characters for a majority of this text. John, what is a hobbit? So uh, a hobbit is a a kind of an invention of Tolkien's uh, based on, I'm sure, some, you know, pixies or nymphs or or some sort of, you know, uh, uh, fey creature in in mythology. But a hobbit is basically a a, a humanoid fantasy character. They're mm-hmm. short. They're they tend to be a little fat, curly haired. They stand. Uh, he says in in uh, the opening sort of um, 
preamble to the story that they're somewhere between two and four feet. Although Christopher Tolkien has clarified in Unfinished Tales that that's sort of the, if you saw a hobbit today in the modern world, they've diminished to the point where they may be only two feet tall. He said, according to his father, most hobbits stood between three and four feet um, in adulthood. That was generally the, the height of a hobbit. So Christopher says that the hobbits get smaller over time, not mm-hmm. taller over time. That's well, that's what Tolkien says, too, that they've okay. diminished and they've kind of faded into the background. Huh. I know what Rankin Bass has said. I was gonna say, <laughs> this is like, we're already getting into Return of the King, the animated movie. Oh, boy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's a big moment in the in the Shire. It's the eleven hundred or the I'm sorry, one hundred and eleventh birthday of yeah. Mister Bilbo Baggins, who was the the Hobbit hero uh, from the book The Hobbit. Let's talk about Bilbo for a second here. Um, Bilbo was our POV, was our introduction to the Tolkien world in The Hobbit, mm-hmm. and is maybe one of the best protagonists of any adventure story ever. Like just because he's such an everyman, like, you know, yeah. me from the, from the Jacob Marley podcast. I love an everyman. I love, I love, I love the, the underdog hero. And Bilbo is that Bill gets thrown into situation after situation. And yet through the skin of his teeth or the quickness of his wits, gets out of it every time. And you root for this guy and you cheer for this Hobbit and you go through all these adventures, misadventures, and tragedies. And we've, if you've read The Hobbit, you, that's who you know this guy to be. This awesome, fantastic, funny uh, little hero. And now it's his 111th birthday. One, yeah. one, 111th, that's what they say. And I think it would be interesting to read The Lord of the Rings without having read The Hobbit because it really positions him as almost like a living legend, right? right? For 60 years, basically, since he left on this adventure with these dwarves in The Hobbit, he has been like the talk of Hobbiton. He's always going to and from the Shire. He's got, uh, you know, always being visited by dwarves or by elves. His, his wizard pal Gandalf is there all the time. So right. there's this for... Uh, a community like the the Shire and the Hobbits, who are a very like agrarian, clearly based on like the north of England, Yorkshire kind of people, right? right? The same guys that Tolkien was in the trenches with, right? Mm-hmm. That's who the Hobbits are. They are a simple people. They keep to themselves. They don't worry about the business of the outside world. But here's this Bilbo Baggins, who's pretty rich. I mean, he's like upper class Hobbit, right? right. He's got and, the nice Hobbit hole. Right. And he was before the adventure, too. And this yeah. just made him more rich and more of a, like, as you said, a, le- a living legend. And yeah, he's 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 become kind of eccentric in his old age, clearly. Right, and he's into and he's into interesting things about the world. Like he's interested about the outside world. He's interested about the history of the world. Mm-hmm. He's interested a lot about like the first age and stuff, stuff like that. And then you have him also getting along pretty well with the younger generation. Like they, mm-hmm. like he's like, he's again, like a local celebrity, but like they make more myths about him. Like they make him out to be the richest thing in the world. He's, he's like the Bernie Sanders of Hobbiton. Like he's, <laughs> he's really, really popular with like the young and idealistic kind of progressive hobbits. Whereas he really pisses off the Hobbit boomers. Like they really, <laughs> really, really are not thrilled with some of the things that he does. And and with that, he's also really and by extension, he has a close relationship with his nephew, who we're about to be introduced to. Yes, 
Frodo Baggins. Yeah, Frodo Baggins. So Frodo, uh, Frodo is a Baggins, um, just like Bilbo. They they share that family name, but he actually grew up in an area of the Shire called Buckland, which is a little bit further. Um, if I'm looking at my map correctly, uh, a little bit further to uh, the east, towards um, towards the Misty Mountains, towards the old forests, on um, the wrong side of the river, as yeah. they would say in Hobbiton. It's on the wrong <laughs> side of the river, so it's right up against uh, the the dark forest, which is um, uh, an area that the hobbits kind of retreated from, sort of in the early days of their wandering before they ended up in the Shire. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit in our our appendices <laughs> section. Oh yeah. Um, a lot going on there. But uh, we we learn pretty early on that Frodo was orphaned. His parents drowned in a boating accident and and Bilbo took him in, which immediately made me think of Tolkien being taken in by um, by that priest um, and how that's so formative for him. I really wonder how much of that relationship is reflected in Frodo's relationship with Bilbo. It also lines up with the age Frodo was at the time. Frodo mm-hmm. was in his 20s, which doesn't sound like it that young. But in Hobbit years, that's kind of like being a teenager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, you, you become you come of age, as we'll find out, at 33. Mm-hmm. And so he, he takes him in at about the same time uh, Tolkien would have been taken in, at about 12 years old or so. So it's it's definitely something he's calling back to, or at least thinking about when he, as he writes Bilbo later on in life. Yeah. And we get this fun. So uh, one of my favorite things in this chapter is there's this little like frame narrative scene where rather than him just telling us a bunch of backstory, he actually shows us like a group of these kind of working class hobbits um, hanging around a bar and like swapping stories because there's all, the rumor mill is really churn- churning in Hobbiton and in the Shire in general because Bilbo's throwing this big birthday party for himself and and it's going to be this huge affair because 111 is like a really important significant birthday. Um so we're introduced to a few characters here most significantly uh Gaffer Gamgee. Gaffer. The Gaffer. Yeah. Um and Sandyman the Miller, his this guy he doesn't like very much who who seems like kind of a jerk. Yeah, um, and and the Gaffer who is the gardener for uh Bag End where Bilbo lives. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very the Bag End is one of the more like central and like high up areas on the hill. It's is it the highest point on uh, on Hobbiton Hill? It's it's the highest point on the hill, and I think it's like the the largest um, Hobbit hole. So the Hobbits live in holes. For people who have no idea what we're talking about, they're kind point, of these John. like good point. <laughs> they live in these sort of burrows dug into um, dug into these mountains. According to Tolkien, initially, kind of in the early stages of their development, they would just burrow into the ground, almost like badgers or something like that yeah but over time they started to you know put up a little stucco and like make a nice door and a window and so it's basically becomes a house that's sort of dug into a hill with all of these tunnels and chambers where they live um yeah it's 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 the choice uh it the more classic like upscale holes are the more rich end of hobbits live in those and more of the primitive as john just kind of described like Lower end hobbit holes are for the poor of the Shire. People in the middle class kind of actually started to live in houses at this time. So there's mm-hmm. so while we while the hobbit hole is a lot of the main characters in our story, we do see they do live in houses and they do yeah. they don't only live in holes. A lot of the Bucklanders, so the, mm-hmm. from the people where where uh, Buckland is where kind of Frodo originally grew up on the other side of the river. A lot of them live in houses. Brandy Hall is one that we'll hear a lot about. I don't think we ever see it in the text, but it's certainly referenced quite a bit. 
And there's a lot of places that are referenced in the text. And if we were had the ability and the time to just go talk about all these interesting little locations in the in the Shire, it would be it'd be fun, but it would be very long and tedious. <laughs> for for a fantasy um, made up land, the it's a developed. It's like a impressively richly developed area where, like, when he talks about the four farthings of the Shire and Bagshot Row and Michael Delving and Buckland and Brandy Hall, like all these places is it feels very real and lived in like it really makes you feel like he understood what a rural community like that would have looked like which obviously he did right he had familiarity with it and also like he took the time to build it and that's the thing again that's what makes this world so rich is like when you have Look at some fantasy maps sometimes and notice the big gaps in between things or the lack of detail for how something works. We know how the Shire works. We know everything about the Shire and we know what gets the people buzzing. And it's a big birthday party (laughs) because hobbits, I don't know if we find out in here or in concerning hobbits, but because hobbits don't give, they don't get presents on their birthday. They give presents on their birthday. So every week you got a good shot of getting a present from somebody in in the Shire. And like, that's a beautiful little detail that just makes the whole world much more like it just puts it up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of good stuff like that. So um, basically, uh, these hobbits, we have Gaffer Gamgee, you know, this this older gardener, um, the Miller Sandy Man. There's a few other hobbits that get mentioned here. They're all kind of like... um, talking about uh you know the rumors around how frodo's parents died and the rumors about bilbo and like the the hobbit hole is full of jewels or he's got you know this wizard coming around who's enchanting everybody and what's going on with that and there's all this like salacious kind of stuff we definitely see like the prejudice that the shire hobbits have for the buckland hobbits which is like a fun little detail people are a little strange on that other side of the river they're too close to that old forest right right um which there's a lot of history, by the way, like the Barrow Downs, the old forest that we'll get into when we get to those chapters. I cannot wait to talk about those chapters because the... we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So um, this reminds me a lot of have you ever read All Creatures Great and Small? No. The James Harriet books? No. So he James Harriet, it's a pen name. I forget the guy's actual name, but he was a he was a veterinarian in Yorkshire in the like 1930s. Um, and he writes these books about sort of fictionalized accounts of his time and life spent there. And the characters in this section of The Hobbit remind me so much of the characters from those books. These like just simple country folk, rumor spreading, stubborn, like the way that he's really captured that kind of society um, is really, really funny. It's interesting just this little scene right here to get a snapshot of all that goes on with these people's lives and how a little thing like a birthday is such an amazing event for all these characters and all the hype that gets built up around it. And as Tolkien talks about, these are some things that the people already know. They already know these facts. They already have heard these stories a couple of times before, but they love hearing them again. They love, they love, they love nostalgia. I mean, that's the thing. They are yeah. very nostalgic people. And it's and definitely like their entertainment. Their entertainment is yeah. sitting around and gossiping and and you know, like right. sharing these little country rumors and scandals and whatnot. Um right. We we get this like nice little seed here where um 
the gaffer talks about his son, Sam, who's going to become an incredibly important character in this story mm-hmm. and how Sam always likes to listen to, to Mr. Bilbo's stories, right? He's one of these young hobbits who's really interested in like the romance and the adventure of it. And gaffer tells Sam, like, nothing good's going to come of this. Nothing good's going to come of you imagining these other places and adventures. You, you stick to good, good, clean earth and and your work in the dirt here. Well, he's also learning his letters from Bilbo. Like he's yeah. learning to mm-hmm. read and write, and that's yeah, that that's not so common. It feels like the way the gaffer's talking. Like we don't know if the I I don't even know if we find out if the gaffer can read and write. Like yeah, it's a very interesting like commentary on uh, on on the Shire, but also on uh, places he's connecting this to the community he grew up with. Mm-hmm. So um uh. The next kind of major thing that happens here is one day as this party's being prepped, this wagon rolls up. It's got two different sort of elvish runes for G on the side in bright red letters because this is the arrival of Gandalf. Gandalf the wizard, who was a, a major concern in The Hobbit and is going to be an even more major concern here in the in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf. If I could tell you all the things I've heard about Gandalf, and I've only heard half the things there is to tell. Oh my gosh, that's the intro line from The Hobbit. Talk about setting up a character. Yeah. yeah. Gandalf is the wizard. He he is he's he's better think of your favorite wizard. I'm sorry, Gandalf is better. He is yeah. just he's <laughs> he he's 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 got everything like take Dumbledore out of it, right? Like he's more active than Dumbledore. He's Dumbledore is way more passive in that narrative. Right. But at the same time, he's got more like wisdom than Merlin. You're right. Like he's a better wizard than Merlin. That's that's, I know what I'm saying there, and I stand by it. I think it's subjective, right? But but Gandalf as a character, especially w- uh, at a certain point, we will talk about the origins of Gandalf and where he actually comes from in, Ooh, in our yeah. appendices section. And um, it's really wild when you know like who and what Gandalf actually is and you see the things that happen with him in this story. But, but for right now, he's coming to provide one of the entertainments, um, or at least superficially, he's come to provide one of the entertainments. I think that the real reason that he's come is going to become clear later on um there's also a bunch of dwarves that show up and that really gets the rumor mill churning um all these letters start going out of bag end uh mm-hmm. basically like it takes up the entire post service and and they have to uh, uh they have to hire extra extra mail carriers for all these letters almost everybody in the local area gets invited to this party and even the ones that don't get invited show up anyway it's woodstock man and what's <laughs> What's funny about it, though, there's also a little bit of controversy because it's like, is Bilbo buying all this stuff locally? Is he using local labor? It's like, yeah. and that's, a, that's, that's some scuttlebutt there. Like, that's like, that's something that Tolkien's talking about. Like, that's the type of stuff people would be bringing up if this came to a certain place. But it's not that big of a deal, but still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's all, he's like hiring in all these outside contractors. Like, what's the story, Bilbo? R- are, right. Are Hobbit cooks not good enough. You got to bring in these dwarf cooks. Like, right. what's the story? And he's but bu- they get these nice invitations and everyone's like, oh, well, the invitation's so nice. I guess I'll have to go <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and he's, but he is buying up like a lot of stuff out of the store, too. Like, it's it's a it's a the detail that goes into this party, like you, you get the scope of it. Like, Oh my gosh, this is the event of the season. And it's a fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, 
when you find out like the reason behind him doing all this oh bilbo is is in a story that has very prominent troll characters bilbo's the biggest troll <laughs> i think he, he he just comes to realize how like he loves the hobbits right yeah. but he's just like i yeah i gotta kind of with what he's gonna do here he's gotta get one over on them should be like you guys gotta wake up a little <laughs> yeah um, we get a conversation, like a brief little conversation between Bilbo and Gandalf here, where ba- Bilbo basically like alludes to some plan that he has. There's some mm-hmm. ulterior motive to this party. It is not just about celebrating his 111th birthday and also Frodo's 33rd birthday, right? Because they share a birthday, right. um, which is and part of part of like kind of their their connection and affinity for each other. And as we talked about, Frodo is coming of age at yeah. this. This yeah. is he, this is like him becoming 18 or 21. Like this is a big step for Frodo. Right, right. Um, so it's the day of the party. Everyone is there. Everyone within the vicinity of the hill, right? This big hill in Hobbiton is there. Even, like I said, some people that weren't invited, they show up anyway with all their kids. There's this really funny detail they talk about where like Hobbit parents are pretty easygoing about their kids staying up late, especially if they're going to get a free meal. And that's because Hobbits love to eat. Okay, yeah, there's, there's three meals at this party. They eat three meals over the course of the party. There are six meals in the average Hobbit day. Okay, like these Hobbits like and know how to eat yeah <laughs> and yeah so yeah it makes a lot of sense like oh we don't have to feed him that much but we have to feed him that much let's go to the party <laughs> yeah um so uh uh there's a ton of food there's a ton of drink there's party games um there's all these fun toys that he brings in for the children that are like made by dwarves and craftsmen from far away some of them bear the mark of dale which is like a fun little little easter nice. egg for people who have read the hobbit yeah. um that's a location that's of, of concern in that story gandalf is shooting off fireworks and it occurred to me this is the first time i really thought about it gandalf obviously if he's making fireworks right there i'm sure they're partially magical but also gunpowder right mm-hmm. he's using gunpowder to like to bring joy and fun and light to to the world mm-hmm. and we're gonna see Spoiler alert for people who haven't read the book and are reading it along. Just skip a few seconds. Um, We're going to see a character like Gandalf use gunpowder in a much more nefarious way later on in the text. And it was just like a fun contrast I saw. We'll talk about that when we get there. And it sets that it's existed up in the world too. Like, yeah, because you have to, when you create these fancy worlds, what is developed? What isn't developed? What do they Mm -hmm. have? And this, this answers that question. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the fireworks is a kind of a tribute to Bilbo. It's a giant dragon that flies out of a mountain and wheels over the crowd and terrifies the hobbits. And then it, it bursts with this huge explosion. And that's the signal for dinner, which is the last meal of the evening. Oh, what a, what an amazing visual. And, and and really, it's such a nice little callback. And there's a lot of those in this chapter to the Hobbit. But like, that's like. All right. Don't know if you're going to get a dragon anywhere else, but like we're going to reference smog here. You know, let's talk yeah. about this dragon. And yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, at this point, the hobbits are kind of like they've had their three meals, they're drinking, they're just kind of like eating their after dinner hors d'oeuvres. Um, they call it filling in the corners, which I thought was like a fun little turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it like, again, the world feels so developed. And I'm sure that's something he heard, like some some Tommy say in the trench or whatever. But like, it's just it's the it's the little details like that that make his world building so good. And I think people definitely accuse Tolkien of being like kind of a stodgy writer, like and I think you have to think number one of like the time period that he was writing in the kind of influences that he had at that time, but also like the world that he creates is so rich and, and uh, lived in and realized that I think you can forgive kind of an older style of writing. Well, maybe that's justifying, but like, I think people who are reading more modern texts can't, you can't really compare the two things. We're talking about like an epic fantasy, basically a, a fantasy poem to modern literature and it just doesn't fly i i think look if it's an authentic voice it'll stand the test of time i i think that i i i i'd like to be proven right on that but who knows you know time makes fools of us all but i really do believe and i think it's been proven so far that what Tolk the style token has written in stands up and doesn't age poorly like some modern works that can't go five minutes without making a joke. Yeah. I mean, I found myself like reading this and laughing yeah. at, at some of like the moments and the jokes, especially with the hobbits and the way they're characterized, like just the society in general. I found a lot of fun still. Well, from the, from gaffer and everybody in the pub to the enthusiasm of the party guests and like the f- joke about the parents bringing their kids mm-hmm. to everything with the Saxville Baggins. Like, oh, yeah, we haven't even talked about the Sackville Baggins as yet. Yeah, let's let's get into them because all right, all you need to know from the Hobbit is they got burned pretty darn bad in the Hobbit uh, with Bilbo yeah. coming back from his adventure, and there has been bad blood for sixty. 60- yeah, so the, the Sackville Bagginses are like a like a distant relative. They're kind of like a lower class branch of the of the family, but they they have had their eyes. So there's Labelia and there's Otho. Do they have a, a son? Do I yeah. remember that correctly from The Hobbit? Yeah, there's a son there. Yeah, he's referenced in this uh, chapter. Yeah. Oh my gosh, these these Saxville Baggins, they are. Yeah. So they basically got their eyes on like inheriting because Bilbo's a bachelor, right? He's not married. He doesn't have kids. He if if Frodo hadn't come along, right? If he hadn't taken Frodo in as his heir, the Sackville Bagginses were standing to inherit Bag End. Which, if they inherited that, they would likely inherit all this like secret wealth that he's he's rumored to have as well. A lot of influence. Well, that's um, what they think. They they believe the rumors that the walls are fooled with gold and such. Yeah. So like they they want Bag End, and uh, Frodo makes it not so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, they're at the party, right? The the invitation was so nice they couldn't help but but accept an invitation. But they're there, kind of like uh, uh, with their stink faces on, and that's going to become that's going to become especially prominent in this next minute because Bilbo gets up at the end of dinner to give this speech. Um, yeah, and he gives it in like the little more VIP section, yeah. which there's a, there's like different tier areas at this party. There's like a bigger section for like all the just the people that of the town that got invited but then there are these smaller little separate sections and this is the smallest and like the like the main table at like a wedding or something yeah like they're that. like the people who were kind of his like second and third cousins mm-hmm. and like the families that are sort of in his family tree because there's these very like the the hobbit sort of genealogies are very complex right. within within the shire um 
and and the Saxville Baggins for all the bad blood there are it are in this group because they are family. Yeah. So um, the the speech is basically, you know, he gets up and says, you know, thank you everyone for coming. I'm really glad that you're here. And and everyone's like, oh, great. That's a good speech. <laughs> Tolkien's commentary throughout this speech is amazing because he's yeah. narrating what everybody's feeling. And like some people are like, oh, my God, he's going to give a speech. We have to let him give a speech, but he's going to give a speech. Yeah. Just please be quick. Please yeah, be like, quick. Yeah. And they're like worried that he's going to try to do poetry because he's Bilbo's pretty known for poetry. And they're like, no, we got to make this quick because we're eating well he's the kind of guy that goes to the pub you know has a few has smoked a little bit of pipe weed and now is just gonna start singing you know uh northwest passage or something like that like he's just gonna start doing some sea shanties <laughs> the equivalent of like this guy and he and he he's the type of guy that likes doing that but also likes being the one doing that right <laughs> so I think it's going to become clear that he also enjoys the fact that it does get a little, it gets on people's plums a little bit. Like it definitely, it definitely irritates some, some of the yeah, more he, nose he, in the air hobbits. He, he, he's the beatnik that, you know, was really cool to all the new hippies that are coming around. Like he's like, like he's the fifties hippie and like he gets, he likes to get a rise out of all these norms, you know, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they all think his speech is over at this point and they like start dancing on the tables and stuff. And then he's like, Oh wait, 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 I got more stuff to say. And they're all like, all right. It starts off so good. And then just slightly nosedive. And then he just keeps talking a little bit too much and he makes one too many offhanded comments. <laughs> yeah, so the one thing he says is like, I know less than half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And they're all sitting there trying to figure out if it's a compliment or not. I think it is. Like, I think I've done the math on this and logic it out and it does come out to a compliment. But what is not a compliment is the number of guests at the party. <laughs> add up to 144 which is a term used mostly for groceries or yeah, you know buying yeah. stuff at a store as one gross yeah and it's not it's not proper to use it to describe a group of people because that's he and frodo they're like collective age is one gross and then he invited 144 people to be able to say like there's also 144 people here so of course the sackville baggins is like oh so he just invited us to hit that number like a lot of the hobbits are very insulted by this which <laughs> And he just made part of his speech was like burying, you know, all, everything with with the Saxville Baggins. Like, hey, yeah, he tried know. to bury the hatchet with them a little bit, and then turns around with this. And it's just, oh, oh. you you feel bad for the Saxville Baggins, but then you don't. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of the worst. They're definitely like the people that would that like Lobelia Saxville Baggins. Uh, during like the great plague that they had you know there's like a plague in the history oh, yeah. of middle earth right during that great plague if she had been around she definitely would have been the one showing up at the green dragon like i'm not gonna wear a mask like <laughs> i have an aluvatar given right not to wear my mask um, <laughs> i am a well there's like three different types of hobbits so she would claim to be like the best version of a hobbit right yeah yeah, and yeah. i don't need it my blood cells keep me Pure. Yeah, yeah. my fellow hide my fellow hide blood oh god yeah. um <laughs> the worst. So, um all this so bilbo kind of like uh, ends this speech with this sort of abrupt i regret to announce i'm going this is the end goodbye right and then he disappears and there's a flash of light mm -hmm. and no one knows what happened he just 
pops out of existence. Yep. And everyone's like, oh, he's being he's being a jerk. He just pulled some sort of stupid magic trick. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not funny. Nobody's really getting what he was saying there. Like, he was being genuine. This was the end. And we're, and he's 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 gone. Yeah, most people think it's some kind of like bad joke. Gandalf uh, obviously is going to take the blame because he's like the the sketchy wizard from from the outer world, and they all kind of only sort of like because of the fireworks. But right, uh, everything else he's he's kind of a disturber of the peace. And as we learn, that flash was added there by Gandalf to give a little bit more of a distraction and cover for what really just happened. Yeah. And nobody knew it was going to happen except for one. Well, Gandalf knew a little bit. Gan- a few of the Gandalf, dwarves. Gandalf the dwar- knew because he talked about Bilbo's joke. He's right. They talk about that in that earlier conversation. But the Bilbo one- obviously knew and Frodo knew. Those and are the three people at the party who knew what was going to happen. And Frodo just kind of sits back and like takes it all in. Yeah. Like, but knows what Bilbo has just done is like, wow, this father figure, this man who has raised me for the past 11 years is, is now gone. And he, is he really committing to this plan and just kind of pieces out for the rest of the evening. And it's kind and like kind of somber and like, like beautiful, like him yeah. just taking in the moment. Uh, it's, yeah. I really love the way it's described where he just kind of like goes out and finishes his drink outside the party mm-hmm. tent. Like, sort of accepting what's going on just uh, some wine or whatever he's drinking just like like just kind of like sipping it and like taking it all in it's like the first hint we get of this character trait with frodo who is going to become kind of our focus as the story moves on he is he's this really like he has this quiet and reserved maturity that Mm -hmm. i really appreciate in him as a character and has always really resonated with me he's just like he's not a person to like put himself out there or to make a big scene but he sort of just takes things in he's a little bit less fastidious and uptight than bilbo was um as a character but i think it's also part of what makes him such a strong figure as we move through is that like that steadfastness that he has. And he's also not a, above making a mistake here or there. And yeah. that's why I think makes it a bearable character. Cause you could have a character with those traits, but if they're so for lack of a better term, holier than now, right. Or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or perfect. They're not somebody you want to follow on an adventure. Though yeah. uh, Frodo is an amazing, uh, elite character for this narrative. And, uh, we'll get more into Frodo later on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what we what we learn has happened, and anyone who's read The Hobbit knows this already, Bilbo has this magic ring, right, that he picked up on his adventure. We'll talk a little bit in the next chapter about where he got that ring. Um, but he uh, when he puts it on, it makes him invisible. That's and, and at least superficially, that's what's happening. Obviously, we're go- we are going to discover that there is much more to what's going on when he puts on that ring. But yeah. he put he puts on the ring. Um, and in order to cover this, his initially his initial plan was that he was just going to put on the ring and disappear. And they'd all be like, oh, what happened? And Gandalf added in the flash like he, you know, used magic or he put a firework off or something to kind of cover it because Gandalf isn't thrilled with the way that Bilbo has been utilizing this ring. Gandalf has some feelings about this ring that we're going to talk about as we move forward. Yeah, he's definitely sus about the ring. Like he... And has been for about 60 years. Like he definitely has been since The Hobbit wondering about this magic ring. And going back to what we talked about uh, when we mentioned the creation of and the revisions of The Hobbit, 
he Bilbo in universe told the original version of that story. And we'll get more into that later on, but it was much more of a simpler deal was made to get the ring. Let's just say, whereas we learned that is something that cannot happen with the ring. It wouldn't work. And Gandalf in universe knows this because that's the story Bilbo tells. And he weasels out of Bilbo. He like, he's like, Hey, tell me the truth here. He gets out of him the real story about how he found it. And there was this whole other misadventure there. Yeah. And essentially he stole it. Like we learned that this is Bilbo stole this ring. Right. um, From the person who had it. I mean, I would, I would invoke finders, keepers, loser, weepers, but you know, like (laughs) I think, I think, I think that, you know, possession is only nine tenths of the law when it comes to uh, rings of power. The whole of Gondor. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that might be the episode title. I think you might have nailed it right there. I'll have to remember that in the edit. Um, <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so Bilbo is in his house and basically he's leaving the Shire. This is a guy who he spent his life here, but he is he's restless. He's antsy. Something has just been off. He's been feeling strange. And he's like, maybe the solution is I need to get out and find someplace else to be. I need to go on an adventure, see the mountains, see the forest, see the elves, whatever it is. And let's talk about the fact it is 100. It's his 111th birthday. That's a long time to be alive, but it's also more interesting because he has been preserved as they would say. Yes. He, He has not, aged since his adventure and if so just a little bit like he is basically the same he was from the hobbit was when he was in his 50s and as we've talked about hobbit ages are kind of different their 50s are close Mm -hmm. to their their 30s or their early 40s so his 50s he went on this adventure and he has stayed consistently looking the same throughout to his 111th birthday and that's not natural yeah, yeah, there's something suspicious about it. They mentioned that at the beginning of the story. And um, as he's sort of packing up, he's getting his travel clothes. He he puts um, his will, which basically leaves Frodo everything, bag end and everything in it, with the exception of a few items he's still giving away. Um, and he puts the ring in this envelope and he's going to put them on the mantelpiece. And then he decides, oh, hang on. And he puts it in his pocket, right? It's, uh-huh. it's like quick little detail. He's by himself. And then Gandalf shows up. And this is where the book turns. Mm -hmm. This is where the tone of The Hobbit is gone. And think about, like we've said, you've read The Hobbit 12 years ago. You, Bilbo Baggins is your favorite hero, adventurer character, this funny little guy. And this scene happens where Gandalf is trying to convince Bilbo to leave the ring behind. And Bilbo reacts in a way that does not feel natural at all for Bilbo. This is not how we this is not how we think Bilbo would ever talk to Gandalf. Yeah. Because he would always, you know, deal with Gandalf with respect. There'd be a little bit of playful banter. I mean, go back to the first chapter of of The Hobbit. But here, this is this is naked dark. aggression. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he is he is really, really un- so um Gandalf's been bothering him about this ring for years, right? Gandalf has suspicions about what this ring might be. Rings of power are even minor rings of power are not um, plentiful in this world. This is not something that you can just pick up anywhere. It's a lost art. No one knows how to do it anymore. And um, 
in particular, this ring, something about it has just been bothering Gandalf, right? right? And Gandalf basically is saying to him, the plan was you're going to give this away. You're going to give this to Frodo. It was time for you to leave it behind. And Bilbo, Bilbo almost pulls his knife on him. Mm-hmm. right oh, Bilbo almost pulls his sword and is like uh, absolutely like you can't make me leave it it's my precious which is something that the previous owner of the ring famously said over and over and over again laying claim to it and ownership of it just now as Bilbo is doing John yeah. was right Bilbo did steal this ring and he is now afraid of of a weaker title to it and he is throwing everything he can at Gandalf to say, no, I'm keeping this ring. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Yeah. It's, it, I can't imagine somebody for the first time reading. I, even when I read it, I kind of knew what was a little bit was going to be going on with the ring. Cause I saw maybe like the trailer to the movie, honestly, but like, man, this is shocking. Yeah, I knew nothing when I was going into Lord of the Rings, but as soon as he started saying like my precious and calling my precious, I was like, yo, that's yeah. just like that. Whoa, I was like, what's going on here? And then I'm like, oh, there's something sinister happening. Like, what is this? So um, Gandalf basically has to like let out a little bit of of his inner power. Mm-hmm. Right. And the room like he he grows and the room gets filled with these shadows and his voice gets all dark and he has to like scare Bilbo straight a little bit here. Like he has to snap him back to his senses. And it works. Yeah, it does work. Mm -hmm. And it works because of how much, how little of how much Gandalf has is revealed in that moment. Yeah. Like Gandalf is holding back so much more than what we just witnessed. And yet what we just saw was this, terrifyingly powerful individual lay some truth to Bilbo and Bilbo gets scared. Like you said, gets scared straight. It's like, you're right. The ring's got to go to Bill, uh, go to Frodo. Think we're going to get through this and we won't be doing that one as much. Once we get to lesser chat, but I'm like, that's the worst to be flip flopping Bilbo and Frodo. I'm sorry. Yeah. Friends, yeah. But, yeah. But he's going to leave the ring to Frodo and he's off and he's going to go with the dwarves and he's just going to leave. Yeah. Um, so he he goes to put it on the shelf and then he drops it on the floor and he he goes to pick it up again. But Gandalf's like, yoink. Nope. <laughs> I'll I'll put it on the mantelpiece. You got to get ready to go. But it does. But he does drop it. Yeah. He does. He does let it go. And we'll get to somebody mentioning making reference to that again. But that's a big deal. That's yeah, a big yeah. Deal. He he does seem to feel a little bit relieved after. There's like a a releasing of the burden, and and he he earlier in this scene kind of described himself to Gandalf as just feeling like thin and stretched out. This ring has been weighing on his mind. He's always wondering where it is. Like it, there was there's something about it that just has been unsettling him, but he's also really possessive of and protective of it. So somehow this object is working on his mind, and he's finally able to kind of let it go. It's um, a, he tried locking it up in a safe. Like this yeah. thing, he's he's addicted to it. He needs to be constantly aware of it, constantly near it, constantly just fidgeting with it. And it's 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 tearing him apart. Yeah. 
it's insidious. It really is like insidious the way that it kind of plays on the people who carry it throughout the rest of the text. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible how much how like potent he can make this tiny little object and how by using Bilbo as which just happened to be the character that had the ring. Right. But but as the example of what this can do to somebody, you instantly the stakes are raised to a new level and you me like what the hell is going on with this right yeah yeah what is this um so my favorite detail about this scene is that there's a bunch of dwarves that are like packing things up in the other room and then they come out right here and i've i've wondered since reading this chapter again like so were they in there like oh, what's, what do you think's going on out there oh, I'm gonna, i don't know just keep packing <laughs> gandalf stuff <laughs> gandalf stuff or or more more sinister does gandalf have them ready to hold bilbo down and get the ring away from him <laughs> yeah yeah i wonder and i do i do think this is why gandalf showed up here like yeah. why he he made a point of coming to this party was to make sure that bilbo was able to leave this thing behind well both are you know he can do, want and do both like he wants to be there for bilbo bilbo has become one of his closest friends on middle earth you know yeah. he was somebody that he saw something in pushed to do some a task and who exceeded his expectations and so yeah. he's very proud of bilbo i i wonder now if there's something going on here if like the way tolkien sort of had this love and affinity for the kind of rural country guys that he was in the war with if that's similar energy is being put into like gandalf's kind of love and affinity for for the hobbits because i really do think that if if any character is like our touchstone for Tolkien in this text, that it's got to be Gandalf. That Gandalf's like a pretty significant sort of uh, uh, avatar for him in this story. Well, I think that's clear that Gandalf is one of several to have that. uh, Certainly. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. he's probably the one that gets the most time because I think Bilbo in a sense also is like, I think think there's definitely elements there as well. I think different big characters of this Mm -hmm. work, our different aspect of Tolkien's, you know, mind. which is true of a lot of authors. Right. I think, it's, put themselves I mean, into their characters. Yeah, he has claimed frequently that, that he does not exist in this text. That's something that he's made a point of. Um, but I, I think I could make an argument for ways that he may not realize that he sort of inserted himself. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And he definitely put himself in there even unknowingly. Right. Yeah. I think he's even said that in some things, like maybe unknowingly I've done some things here or there, but that, ha- like you said, that happens with all writers. Just some of that stuff's going to come through. Sure. Um, so uh, Gandalf and Bilbo say their goodbyes. Bilbo sings himself a little traveling song. And then, uh, which I, th- is that a throwback to the Hobbit? It's been a long time since I read the Hobbit. Does that song appear in there? No, I don't think it does, but it is a song that Bilbo has written. This okay. is this is a traveling song that Bilbo uh, has written. I don't remember it being in The Hobbit. Like maybe he wrote it on his. Adventures. I feel like I want to go back and look and correct that next time. Or if you're listening, feel free to email us at frodolivespod at gmail.com and let us know. We are not Stephen Colbert. <laughs> no, no. Stephen Colbert is the authority on Tolkien. Okay, I, I, ooh, I think that there. Uh, I think he's the celebrity authority. I think there are some. It's, there's that some very the written academics who might argue with you, but, but. Th- that makes him like the poster boy authority. Like yeah, that makes yeah. him like the figurehead of the community. Not I look, and I know there's d- many different cool Tolkien societies out there that are just waiting to pounce on me right now. For the first thing I get wrong, but 
I think to, if you ask most common day people, like name somebody who knows a lot about Lord of the Rings. They're going to say Steve Colbert. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, so Gandalf kind of waits for Frodo to show up. Frodo comes in shortly after. He was kind of hoping maybe he would catch Bilbo before he left, but he doesn't quite manage to. Mm. Um, Gandalf gives him uh, the envelope with the ring, tells him to, you know, just keep it, keep it out of sight. Yeah, you know, don't do uh, You know, you know what you could do? You could not wear it. Could, yeah. you, could, could you could you not wear it? That'd be that'd be great. You know, like never put it on like very sparingly. And by very sparingly, I mean, never put it on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then he goes to sleep. He heads out for the night. Um, yep. So Frodo had basically the day before had sort of closed out the party and he had said, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm sure there'll be an explanation in the morning and, you know, everyone go and have a good night. And the next day, everyone shows up to kind of clean up after the party and cart away all the hobbits that were sleeping there, you know, drunk and full of food. And um, then Woodstock. a bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> Woodstock. Woodstock, yeah. indeed. And then a bunch of people show up at Frodo's door, some of them invited, some of them just, you know, nosy Parkers who want to know what's going on. And he basically says to them, yeah, Bilbo's fine, but he's gone away on a long journey. I don't think he'll ever be back. And um, then what my favorite moment from this chapter happens, which is where Bilbo leaves all these gifts for various relatives and all of them are like throwing shade at people. Yes. It's like it's like uh, he's got like a what is it like a writing desk or, or something like that for a relative who never writes letters back or something, never writes thank you notes or something like that. Yeah, But I, but, but see that's shade, but I, I took note of that one too, because I feel like that's him. Like I'm going to write him letters. Uh, yeah. You're going to need to write me back because we're going to keep correspondence. That's me being very kind to Bilbo there. Yeah, There's also though, like the one where there's a, fr- uh, he has a relative who's a, has a habit of borrowing books and never returning them. So he gives her a bookshelf. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> He leaves Labelia Sackville Baggins like a case of silver spoons and that's it. And they, they come in and give Frodo a hard time about reading the will and making sure that it's all legal and whatnot. And of course it is. And she's checking the walls. Uh, she's oh, yeah. in Bag mm-hmm. End because she's like, there's gold in them walls. Yeah. One, there's like a, one of the proud feet is like digging up uh, the back <laughs> pantry, trying to find gold buried under the floor. Oh man. Oh, I love the line where where she's like it tries to insult Frodo by calling him a brandy buck. And um, Frodo's friend, Mary Adok, Mary Brandy mm-hmm. Buck is there um, and they're much closer, I think, in this than than in the film. And I promised myself that I wouldn't spend this whole podcast talking about how the book is different than the film. But this is one instance where I noticed like F- Frodo is really close with Mary and Pippin as characters in the book. They're like really good friends, whereas I feel like in the movie we get the sense that they like are well acquainted, but not necessarily on the same sort of age tier or something like they don't seem as tight in that to me. <laughs> No, it's definitely a gr- uh, it's definitely Mary Pippin and Frodo are the more of the tight knit group than even Sam and Frodo at this point in the story. Yeah. And we'll be going down different routes. We'll talk more about how that changes over yeah. the narrative. But Mary Brandybuck is like Frodo's cousin. And when LaBellia calls Frodo a Brandybuck, he's like, oh, it's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the Brandybucks are they they are no joke in that community. They they uh, yeah. they are pretty they, they are they are. They have a bit of edge to them. We'll leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. So um, 
you know, a bunch of hobbits come in and there's this rumor that goes around that basically everything in Bag End is up for grabs, even though it's just supposed to be a few gifts. And so people are trying to like swap gifts in the hallway and like they're, they're having to like stop people at the door who are stealing stuff. And it's this whole mess that Bilbo leaves Frodo to clean up. This um, day must have sucked for Frodo. Like, seriously, like yeah. the way Tolkien well, writes he's it, late. He's late for tea. Like he has to have his tea late, which must be really terrible. I mean, that's when that happens to a hobbit, their whole day was ruined. So, yeah, Yeah, it's true. And just as he's settling down, there's another knock at the door. And then Gandalf basically threatens to blow the door down the hole if Frodo doesn't come open it. Well, he's like, he's sitting down finally, like he's got a moment, right? Do you think Gandalf's a little hungover from the night before? I think Gandalf's a lot of things, (laughs) but yes. I think Gandalf really is like starting to get worried and has no time for being like left at the door because yeah. Frodo just thinks it's somebody else who thinks there's free stuff at Bag End. So right. he just doesn't answer the door knock after like four yeah. or five times. And Gandalf is livid and it's amazing just to yeah. hear him. Yeah. If you don't come and open this <laughs> damn door, I'm going to blow it in. Like you went big bad wolf on this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they have this little conversation. He kind of like, like quizzes Frodo, like how much he knows about the ring. Frodo has been told the real story, which is that Bilbo stole the ring from, from its previous owner. Not the, not the version that he wrote in his book, which is that it was a game of riddles and he won it fair and square and then was showed the way out to the exit. Right. Um, and this Which is, is what Tolkien wrote in the original version of The Hobbit and then had to revise out. And this is how he justifies that in universe is that when Bilbo told the story and wrote it in his book, he wrote this like fictive version to cover up for the fact that he stole the ring. You modern day retcon and nerds for Marvel and DC and all the other things in between got nothing on J.R.R. Tolkien. He made it canon that there was a false narrative in his original release like that is some next level nerd right there and And it's not just like i'm gonna make this canon because i need to justify it it the the choice to have bilbo cover this one detail up when the rest of his story is ostensibly true is it reveals the nature of this thing that it is evil and manipulative and it will make good people do bad things and 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 tell themselves lies yeah. And 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 that's it's a wonderful it's the right choice and it, yeah. especially with what is about to come ahead. Yeah. Um so uh Gandalf basically tells him, you know, keep it out of sight. Look for me at odd times. I'll be checking up on you every now and then. Um and he's like, "But I got to go. I got some I got some things that I have to deal with. I got I got to look into this a little bit more." Um, he and Frodo's a little sad. He thought he was going to be around for a little bit longer, at least a week or so. Yeah. And, and Gandalf's like, nope, I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a couple of reasons. Number one, all the hobbits think that he murdered Bilbo. Like they all think that he like poofed him out of existence or something. The There's cons- this rumor mill going around that Gandalf is behind everything. So he's like, uh, water's a little hot for me here. <laughs> I'm going to head out for a few decades and see if I can uh, let Look, things cool down. Nobody wants to be a wizard killed in the Shire. So, you know, it's it's all good, you know, like. Um, so, yeah, Gandalf leaves. <laughs> And Frodo doesn't see him, as we're told, for quite a long time. And that is where our chapter ends. And what a chapter. Yeah. Like, what a great bridge. 
Yeah. For, Left us with like a nice juicy little question about what's going on here. Right. Um, and then we're going to get a pretty long gap before the next chapter starts. Right. So um, we got to take a pause here for our second breakfast. And when we come back, we're going to be cracking into our appendices. So stick around. We'll be right back. Oh my, I didn't see you there. You really spooked me. Just like my podcast, The Paranormal Burrito. We're a weekly podcast featuring a new guest every episode. So join us for fun and spooky stories. If you have a spooky story you'd like to share, email us at theparanormalburrito at gmail.com. The Paranormal Burrito, your true stories. Right, welcome back. We are uh, going to be opening up into the the back quarter of this show, which we call the appendices. Yes, um, yes, good, good to see you here, sir. In the appendices, <laughs> yes, good, good to be here. Uh, here at the appendices, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to cut loose a little. Uh, up until this point, we've tried to keep things relatively spoiler free. We have may have mentioned a couple of things that are going to come up later on in the story, but our goal is to have our discussion of the actual chapters be just about the events of that chapter in the context of what we've read so far. Here in the appendices, we're going to get into kind of a little bit more of the background, a little bit more information about the stuff that's happening in this chapter, and that may require us to talk about things that um, might spoil elements of the story. So you are welcome at this point if you want to turn the podcast off, read the rest of the book, and then come back. I don't think that there's anything we're going to spoil too terribly here, but you never know. These appendices sections are going to be what they're going to be. Well, I will just say before we get into it that there is some very subtle symbolism that ties into things at the end of the books I found in this chapter, and I'm going to bring them up. So I will be going all the way to the very end of the book. So be warned, friends. Be warned. Yeah. Um, so, Jim, did you have any any topics you were interested in discussing in our appendices this week? Well, first of all, I think we should mention concerning hobbits. Mm-hmm. It is a, a section of the book that was originally intended to be the first thing you read, the foreword, if you will. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. there's there's two forewords, actually. There's one that is kind of like a summary of the process of writing The Lord of the Rings and the things that are going to be coming up, the history of what he calls the War of the Ring. Um, and that's, a, that's one foreword. But another one was this c- couple of chapters about the world of the hobbits yeah. and going mm-hmm. into how their society works. And we kind of mentioned a few things of that, of that in, the, in a previous section. But I just think we should take a, a second to really talk about what goes on in, in that little writing. What, what Tolkien is setting up with this world. And, yeah. I think, and I think one thing of note is how Tolkien really tries to paint the best possible picture for this hobbit society mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, tolkien is famous for like obviously the silmarillion is really concerned with the origin of elves and men who are two of the races that we're going to see pretty prominently they're kind of the dominant races in um 
his world, which is called Arda, Middle Earth, I think is often thought of as like, is Middle Earth the name of the world of Tolkien? It's kind of the name of the continent where um, most of the story takes place. And even that, most of it is in an area called Beleriand, which is sort of like the northwest part of Middle Earth. Um, Europe. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Essentially, yeah. And the whole world, like Arda itself is actually, I think, relatively small compared to the world, right? It's when you look at it as a complete map, um, it's it's not a very large fantasy world. It's pretty no. contained. No, it's very much uh, it's. We get hints of what's on the borders of what we see in the maps we see, but there is a whole con- there's a whole world that we just don't know about. Well, but even there, like if you if you really look at the way it's described in the Silmarillion, you have Valinor, and then you right. have which is sort of like the the far west, this kind of magical land mm-hmm. where the elves live, which we'll talk about later on in the story, right. um, which is sort of like uh, a highly significant place in. Um, the Silmarillion and is relatively significant in Lord of the Rings when it comes to what's going on with the elves. Then in the middle of the map, you have middle earth, right? Right. Um, And then over to the far West, there's an area called like the dark lands or something along those lines. Um, But the story we're going to be talking about takes place in middle earth. So, so the hobbits live in this area called, um, called Eriador, which is sort of near um, near like the western coast of Middle Earth. And mm-hmm. Tolkien has these very specific origins and lineages of elves and men and dwarves. Like we know where all three of those races come from. Yeah. Elves and men were sort of created by like the god of this universe as like the elves are sort of like the firstborn children. And then the men are these like followers after. And there's like a lot of mystery around the purpose of men who right. live these like much shorter lives. Um, and, and then in there, the dwarves come into existence before they're supposed to even. And it's there's, and that creates tension between the dwarves and the elves. So even though they are both creatures that are created uh, under the same, um, Part of the song, I guess you could say, right? Well, yeah. So the dwarves were created by one of like the the Valar, who are these these sort of um, like this pantheon of godlike figures that mm-hmm. the big capital G god, right, sort of created to um, create and tend to Arda, which is like the world in which the story takes place. So right. this is all very complicated. We'll probably touch on these things more specifically individually as we go through. But I'm, I'm saying all this because his mythology has really specific origins for where all of those races come from and not for hobbits. Like he has sort of vague notions of where hobbits come from. Mm-hmm. The most likely scenario is that they are sort of a branch off of the race of men so that their origins are human. But at some point there was some kind of a split, but we're not really sure. Right. There, there's more mystery to them than I think pretty much any other race in middle earth yeah. maybe because even the ends we get a little bit of something for you know yeah and the in-universe explanation by the way is that the elves really didn't keep records of the hobbits until the third age right mm-hmm. that hobbits don't really enter the history of the world in a significant way until the third age of the world even though we're told that they exist as far back as like the first age right right which well, is when the elves and the men first appeared on middle earth which makes sense they are some sort of 
again, Tolkien has created his own type of creature here in The Hobbit, right? Like in most fantasy novels now, if they want a Hobbit-like creature, they call it a halfling. But halflings weren't really a thing before Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So you have these totally unique creatures that Tolkien's created. But at the same time, they do have ties to other things there, little versions of gnomes and such, right, who are known to be yeah. able to disappear and get out of sight. And that's what hobbits know what to do. And concerning hobbit, uh, we talk, they talk about how they have the ability to really get out of sight quickly and not be noticed by the big people of the world. And that's one of their strengths. They, they, yeah. they avoid these other big things going on. and. What I think is funny is how that's like matriculated down into like D and D halflings who are always like rogues or thieves. Like right. they have like stealth skills in in kind of RPG circles. But Tolkien, I think, uses that to explain why like we don't see hobbits running around because we're big and stupid and and make a lot of noise, and the hobbits always like scurry into their little holes and hide. Um, do you want to know my favorite like kind of fan theory about where hobbits come from? Hit me. So in in the Silmarillion, we're told that um, Aule, who's who's one of these kind of godlike figures, created the dwarves because he was just so eager to meet the elves and men that he tried to create his own race of kind of subservient beings who who he could guide and teach stuff. And it didn't really work like they didn't have any will outside of his will. They couldn't exist as independent creatures. But the god of that world came down and was like, hey you did this too soon. Like this isn't part of the plan. And he's like, okay, I'll destroy them. But, and it's kind of like the, the Bible story of Abraham and Isaac, where like mm-hmm. he goes to destroy them. And then the God of the world has pity and is like, Hey, listen, I know that you did this because you just like want to do, do the thing that I made you to do, which is like to teach something. So I'm going to give them existence. But because you did this at the wrong time, they have to wait until the elves show up and they're going to be, there's going to be animosity between the elves and, and, the dwarves there's always going to be this kind of tension between them right which is a really cool story so my favorite fan theory is that um in this story yavana who's another one of these of the valar who's another one of these gods um she's really mad because um the uh dwarves are kind of it's foretold that the dwarves are going to be kind of um enemies of the trees and that they're always going to be like chopping down trees to fuel their furnaces and stuff and Part of the story is like that's that's kind of the origin of the creation of the Ents, that there are these tree shepherds who are going to guard the trees. But there's also this fan theory I've heard that she secretly created the hobbits and brought them to Iluvatar and was like, please, <laughs> can, can I have these two? Because hobbits have this affinity for growing things for the earth, for for um, gardening and, and farming and, and working the land in that way. And I don't think that that's true. Like, I think in the mind of Tolkien, he sort of expresses them as just like possibly related to humans. We're not really sure. But I think it's an, a fun theory that like she kind of secretly created them, but no one recorded it because the elves really didn't care about halflings. The elves don't really care about anything that aren't elves, you know, and they only like recording human man history because it's a lull for them. (laughs) (laughs) Like Numenor. Let's just talk about that for a second. Like they Atlantis themselves. And so, (laughs) so like, ha ha, like they, they, they love talking down to all the other races, the elves. Man, they are, and we'll get into this. They are just such a fascinating contradiction in the, in this world, you know. Like they are, they are, they are simultaneously this, these divine beings, 
and yet they have so many flaws, yeah. you know, and they are so they make the same mistakes humans make, but because they have this air about being something more, you know, they tend to be kind of jerky. And I I love I love how this book pre- presents them in both lights without yeah. making comment on it, you know, yeah. so you can get there on your own. It's really Yeah, they're nice. just kind of like characteristics to each of these, to each of these kind of species that exist in this world. Um, the other theory that I've heard that I, I think is really, I find really appealing is there, there's this kind of, there's this thing in the Silmarillion where the, the world is created through this song, right? So initially the world is conceived of in this song that is composed by Iluvatar, who's like the big, again, capital G God of the universe. Right. And the song is sung by the Ainur, who are these like angelic figures. Some of them will come down to become um, the Valar, who are like the gods of Middle Earth. And some of them will um, become... Uh, some of them are are like the Maiar who are um, spoilers like Gandalf, the Balrog, right? There are mm-hmm. characters who are sort of these um, servants to the Valar. And um, th- part of uh, the thing with the song is that they don't fully understand what it is that their song has created. There are there are things that are mysteries even to the Valar in this song, in these harmonies that they create. And that Hobbits, it's possible, are like the response to the discord created by Melkor, right? Who's like the Satan figure. Melkor, um, we'll hear him referred to as Morgoth in in this, who is kind of like, he was Sauron's boss uh, back in sort of the early stages of the world. But he injects this discord into, into this song to try to like have things his own way. And we know that that discord is going to cause evil. It's going to cause destruction. It's going to cause chaos. And hobbits in many ways are like the antithesis of that. They are a, a peaceful people. They are very in tune with the earth. They are unassuming. They're not like proud they are a simple and humble people who are ultimately the undoing of evil in this story and that it's possible that hobbits are just this unknown part of the song that like he secretly that the god of this world secretly worked in knowing that um there would come this dark hour where you needed these this simple goodness to counteract the great evil and what's what what the song is the song of the world right and that is being sung no matter what discord Melkor adds to it, right? There's always balance with some sort of new voice being added to it, like possibly the hobbits yeah. or other heroes or about like, there's all these other things that are being added to the song and the song becomes richer because of its correcting of that discord, which in a way is talking about God's plan, you know, yeah. like that is what's being, and this is Tolkien's, origin myth for like god's plan in this universe like this is like and it's heavily cribbed from like christian creation mythology and uh milton's paradise lost oh there's a lot of similar elements there as well so we really see his faith kind of like strung through that creation story and it's a it's beautiful poetry it's like i yeah it's my favorite part of the silmarillion is those like opening those opening chapters about the creation of the world that's the stuff I really dig about the Silmarillion as well. I like that origin story and like that, like Genesis narrative there. Yeah. I, what I don't like is a bunch of elves just being jerks and fighting over some stones, but that's besides the point. <laughs> some of that, but again, like that's all kind of flavor that's going to be important as we move into 
Oh, it's it's very important to what we're getting into. But what we get into is the really interesting, rich stuff, right? Yeah. I think personally, the Silmarillion is great history. Yeah. I don't think it's great narrative. No, I don't know that it's intended to be either. Like no, it's I don't definitely think- a historical text. It's like it's it's kind of like the prequels in a way. Like there's great story there. It's just it's not told in the most enjoyable way. You know, sure. like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I like I, to be honest, like maybe it's just like the place I am in life. I very, very heartily enjoyed reading the Silmarillion. Like I, I found the not necessarily like as a story, but like going through and just reading each individual narrative, like the stuff that happened with Feanor, like I, I find really interesting the the kind of um the rift that takes place over like the Silmarils and whether he's going to give them to the gods to help create like a new light and stuff. Um, I mean the, 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 the history of the trees. I mean, like that's like, that's more in the earlier stuff, but like you got that and you also have all the adventures of getting these darn Silmarillions away from Melkor. Look, it's a good story. I, I like the story Tolkien was setting up for his world. I just don't. I think if Tolkien wanted to tell the Silmarillion, he would sell it in a different light. You know? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, he was definitely trying to get it published. I think it just never found like footing during his lifetime, from what I understand. Um, but uh, another significant thing in the Silmarillion, right, is this character Ungoliant, who's this like this spider, this enormous spider demon that doesn't seem to have an origin. It just comes from like the outer darkness of the world. Mm. And again, I think is kind of supposed to be sort of originated in the discord of Melkor. And it is possible that like the hobbits and the halfling kind of species could be a response to that as well. And I like the fact that these characters are so important, but they don't, we don't really know where they come from. There's this a little bit of mystery surrounding where they emerged from, and they're going to become so important to the history of the world in the third age. So um, the origin of the hobbits is really interesting. I, I think that I had the misconception just in being a young reader and not really thinking about like how deeply Tolkien had thought about this world, that the hobbits had always just lived in the Shire. And that was like where hobbits live, just like elves always live in Rivendell and men always live in Gondor and stuff. And we know from like the Silmarillion, as we're saying, that there's a lot of movement, like the way that these civilizations and these societies and cities and and settlements spring up is very organic. Um, So the earliest thing that Tolkien says um, about the hobbits is that they originally lived in in the upper vales of the Anduin River near um, what was then called Greenwood the Great and would eventually become Mirkwood, which is a fairly significant location in in the Hobbit. In all of the, the Legendarium, that's yeah. another name for uh, Tolkien's work. It, I mean, Mirkwood plays a big factor in the Hobbit, plays a big factor in the history of Melkor uh, and and Sauron, who I don't even know if we mentioned the Dark Lord's name yet, but Sauron is a big factor in these books. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now they what what age they move over from the river at what, and during what age again? So it's it's unclear. Uh, I think exactly. I'm, I'm sure someone would disagree with me. I'm like sure someone who's who's well read about this knows, but they they leave that area citing that there's this kind of um shadow right well there's a a proliferation of of big folk in the area so like men are moving more and more into the area um uh possibly from i think 
I think that's you, near Dunland. So there's probably Dunlandings moving in. Couldn't um, it be couldn't it be the Born uh Bjorn men, could it be? The Bjorn the Bjornings? The Bjornings? Couldn't it be them? They that, they kind of show up after the Hobbit. The Bjornings. Right. Well, Although like the people that Bjorn comes from, possibly, yeah. Right. That's the I mean, you can't get much bigger than those changelings. Like the like yeah. they're that's another that's another topic for another time. AKA yeah. my favorite character from yeah. the Hobbit. <laughs> Um, but they also do cite this growing shadow in Mirkwood, which we will eventually discover is Sauron kind of hiding out after after the War of the Last Alliance. Um, so they move uh, they move westward. Um, they cross the mountains into kind of Arnor. They end up near like Arthedain at one point, which is sort of in the north. And um, they kind of have settlements throughout. Um, mm-hmm. And they end up uh, sort of... Um, they end up sort of uh, finding the favor of King Argleb II, who is the king of the Dúnedain mm-hmm. in Arnor at the time, right? And these guys are important because this is sort of like the remnants of Numenor um, and the rem- the remnants of um, the line of of Elendil who dies fighting Sauron, right? The King of Gondor. Just to go over it one time, Numenor is the greatest civilization that, as we say in, in the legendary man ever had, right? It was this massive continent that had all these amazing, you know, advancements on it and colonized Middle Earth a little bit. Well, it came to Middle Earth aid, during the war uh with um what what was it when did they first attack uh they returned after melkor or they turned the tide against melkor that's right right yeah i think so and out of that sauron knew he had to deal with them and he tried several different strategies and then his final strategy was to corrupt them from the inside and numenor then falls and it becomes corrupt they try to go into the west which is a no-no unless you're a chosen or an elf. And at that point, the entire continent is sunk into the ocean along with Sauron, who gets uh, loses some of his abilities because of this. He actually loses his ability to be a shapeshifter. He can no longer, he, cause he used to change from like into a vampire or a werewolf and, and spider and stuff like that. He could be all different types of shapes, but after this, he kind of stays more of like a, a humanoid i would get say right like that type of yeah his dark lord so form and so numenor though the remnants the last bits of it have settled on middle earth and have established many different you know territories and kingdoms and and of course the most famous one the one that is in the movies that most people know of is gondor but the other kingdom is to the uh in the it's northwest. north of Eridor. It's Arnor, which is in the north. Yeah, the northwest of Middle Earth, and it's 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 a fascinating part of the history because what we're dealing with in the Lord of the Rings is the aftermath of its destruction. Yeah, yeah. Like, this was a once a mighty kingdom that, over a long campaign, is now just is not really even held together by anything, honestly, and you have the hobbits in the middle of this and they used to have to pay tribute to the, uh, to the, um, to the, to the king of Arnor. They, they had yep. to pr- repair his bridges and uh, maintain uh, the and, area. 
and he but he basically gave them like the shire he basically said here you can have this area um they ended up it's rumored that they supported him in his war against the witch king of angband um which is a pretty significant character that will come up in lord of the rings um so the hobbits have this like this quiet but significant role in the history of middle earth and then mm-hmm. after the fall of of arnor and the like the dunedain basically becoming this like ragtag um sort of uh, group of of survivors um the hobbits end up kind of electing their own officials and living a pretty peaceful and quiet life in the shire yeah they keep to themselves they really don't have much of an export there is some export as we'll get into later on and that's a that's actually the second thing in the concerning hobbits is how big pipeweed is in this world and mm-hmm. and how that will be a big factor in how things develop later on but they t- they keep to themselves um and their their neighbors to Bree, who are kind of like the human capital of the their area at that point. It's a big hub uh, for both human for, for humans and uh, yeah. So there's this like east road that kind of leads leads all the way um, out from Hobbiton across from to Bree across the mountains through Mirkwood to the Lonely Mountain, which is basically the road that um, Bilbo took with Thorin and the dwarves. Um, which has and, a, and Bree is kind of like the first stop on that road after you leave Hobbiton. Right. You're starting to enter into more wild territory after Bree. Yeah. And then and as we'll get into very quickly, um, probably some of the most interesting chapters, one right after another, each one having a different flavor as we'll go into. But like the, yeah. the pacing and the chase and the like the tension that just goes in this weird up and down thing throughout everything. It's what you think is a very quaint area, the Shire. It's, it's almost Lynchian in a sense of how much there's dark stuff underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Or around. Yeah. Just kind of like on the outskirts, how maybe how sheltered they are, you know, but like, the Barrow Downs. We'll get into that. Um, mm-hmm. The old forest. Um, yeah, all these remnants of like the of Arnor and the sort of the the war against Angband, which is uh, that place in the north that was um, initially uh, was was Angband where Melkor's fortress was, and then it was taken over by the Witch King, or did the Witch King create Angband? I'm trying I to think remember. Angband was there. originally a stronghold for Melkor that was then repurposed by the Witch King. I think you're right there. Um, it's in the weaker of the three kingdoms after the divide, right? Man, if if someone hasn't read Lord of the Rings or like touched on the Silmarillion, a lot of this is going to sound like gobbledygook. Look, you are in the appendices right now, friends. Yeah. All right, the the smoking light is on. Okay, get your pipe weed out because we're just here to talk about our nerddom for the Lord of the Rings. Okay, just yeah. buckle up. This is going to be like every post game after a chapter summary. Um. To get back on point, though, the things from the first chapter, though, something I want to touch on is the death of Frodo's parents. Mm-hmm. And this is a big spoiler for later on in the books. But b- hobbits and boats aren't supposed to go with each other. That's kind of a thing that's talked about. I think it's kind of referenced in The Hobbit, but I'm not positive. And, but it's definitely established in the first chapter of uh, The Lord of the Rings. And... I don't think that's a, an accident that Frodo probably has a fear of boats, right? Like, but throughout this story, Frodo and the water, he has to work with it 
time and time again. And that's one of his biggest fears. He has to constantly challenge himself to deal with water. And it's not mentioned that much. Like they don't talk about like him having like a response to the fact that that's what killed his parents, but how could it not? Right. And think about where it goes from in the, in the flight from the Hobbiton to Bree, right. With the fairy. Think about at the end of the, of book, book two with him leaving right on a boat there. And with Sam, think about the end of the entire story. Like it's all about him being able to travel on water and conquer that fear. And it's so subtle. And I never noticed it until I reread the chapter this time. I, of course, had known how Frodo's parents had died because they make light of it. And they- it's a really interesting point. I had never really thought about that little tie in, but like his little personal trauma that he has to sort of manage. And it's because they really don't talk about his parents' death after this chapter at all. It's not really a present concern for him. He's much more kind of um, enamored with Bilbo. I, but I think that's Tolkien. I think Tolkien yeah. knows that that's something Frodo is dealing with, but he doesn't give it a voice. And I don't know if that's because we just don't talk about those types of things. But or what? But it's I have definitely now looked at it like that, like yeah. that. That is another layer of, Fro- of Frodo's courage, who as a character is so brave. I mean, just we're going to get into it every episode, but like Frodo is. The older you get, I feel, and the more you spend time with this narrative, uh, you really start to appreciate Frodo's journey here and everything he has to suffer through and deal with. And it's. It's uh, and he, and we only get a little bit here of Frodo because it's not Frodo's chapter. It's this is this is the love letter to Bilbo and his exit, and yeah. it's needed because how big of a character he was from the previous book. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice little little handoff. Um, well, I think that's gonna uh, we're gonna close our appendices here. Oh, um, unless- can we just talk some more about it? Because I can I could talk like for five more hours. Well, we'll have we'll have plenty of opportunities. I have a feeling Um, uh, we do have some words from our fellowship here. Um, I I put the call out uh, as we were sort of plotting this episode for anyone's thoughts on this first chapter or on Lord of the Rings in general. And um, I did receive uh, one message back from Mike and Tim at the Film Nerd Theater podcast. Uh, They left this message. Our father watched Fellowship of the Ring. Fantasy is not his cup of tea. He goes for car chase action movies. His <laughs> review in its entirety, quote, best I can figure, this bunch of guys went on a trip and had a lot of bad luck, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is pretty accurate, I would say. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a series of unfortunate events, but it's, yeah. but, but you have, it's funny that experience because I watched all three movies with my grandfather. My grandfather, my grandpa Zimmy, and he, I don't think he ever read Lord of the Rings. I'm sure he knew about it, maybe caught the Hobbit animated special on TV because there wasn't that many options back in the day and this thing was on. But I remember watching a VHS copy of it with him. And then we went to see Two Towers and then we went to see Return of the King. And he seemed to like it. And I think that's. I think that's a wonderful thing about Tolkien, the generational like connections people can have. Like this is fourth generation now of this book. Like Oh yeah, it came out in the fifties. So you have people in their thirties and then the hippies got in the sixties and then people in the the D D crowd got in the eighties, like yeah. in the seventies. 
and um, we got in the 90s and the 2000s like and it's and and it just keeps going like yeah yeah we got the amazon series coming out which i'm i think i've heard rumors is actually going to deal with kind of like primitive hobbits which is pretty interesting so we might get some of this kind of background um of the halflings in that story hobbits on numenor is that what we're going to get I don't know if they'll be on Numenor, but I think if if we're going to see maybe some things happening on Middle Earth, I mean, I know Numenor is going to be a major concern. But... I think that's the major thing. I think we're yeah. building up to the fall of Numenor as I mean, look, they could do the entire war of uh, the entire war of the last alliance. That would be amazing, like building up until the battle. Of the I mean, those Age. characters are definitely of concern, right? They've cast an Isildur. They've cast his sister. Um, a lot of the like. There's a young Galadriel that's been cast. So I think we're going to see that. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. I, I, there's just so many stories. I'm really intrigued about all those. Like I said, I don't think they're bad stories. I just don't like the way they're presented in the Silmarillion. I am very, I'm fascinated about how these are going to play out in a new setting. Yeah. This, this is a big moment. Like there's been a lot of silly stuff in Tolkien media. But this is a big moment. This is the one of the first big things post Christopher's uh, like, I guess the Hobbit was also kind of post Christopher's control. But like this is post his death. What is going to be put on screen? That's yeah, I'm, I'm anxious about it because I watched the Fellowship of the Ring yesterday uh-huh. um, on my birthday and uh, it holds up incredibly well. Um, and I'm realizing like there's a lot of stuff that's cut. There's like so much more that's not there than I remembered um, from the text, even the extended version. But like the way that it really tries to hold true to like the tone and the flow of the story, I'm I, it was so well done and so sincere. And then The Hobbit was so not that the Hobbit trilogy that I'm it's made me really gun shy about any Lord of the Rings content moving forward, especially now in a time where I think more liberties are taken with stories like this for narrative purposes. And I'm just Tolkien. I'm not a purist about a ton of things, but I feel like Tolkien mythology is something that I have kind of puristy feelings about. So I'm anxious. I'm hopeful that it's going to be really good, but definitely anxious as well. I think the bigger concern between the two examples, right? And the difference there is like, with Lord of the Rings and what I'm assuming is going to happen with the Silmarillion, they squeezed out of Lord of the Rings everything down to its like essential core. Mm-hmm. And then to like certain things that we'll get into in this podcast were changed so that it could still give you the same feel but support other things to, to make the whole piece more co- consumable in a movie format, right? Right. I think that's what they're going to do with Silmarillion, as opposed to The Hobbit, where they weren't squeezing stuff. They were shoving stuff in. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. they were putting back in the White Council stuff, which is a one-off line in the last chapter. Yeah. Now, for a nerd like me... It's more fleshed out in, like, his other writing. Like, we know right. like that stuff exists. It's just, it wasn't handled super well after, like... No. This sort of initial few scenes and I don't know. and and also like you don't need to make it three films. You're stretching it with two. Yeah, no, it was a it was a pretty cheesy cash grab. Um uh, Yeah, we're good. That's another aspect of this podcast, friends. We're just gonna be sad about the Hobbit movies. Yeah, like, we won't dwell t- we we won't dwell on that too much. I really want this to be an exploration of the of the text itself and and no, kind of give me a chance to get back into that, but 
but we'll definitely bring that up from time yeah. to time because yeah. it, it, it hurt. <sighs> that wound will never truly heal. <laughs> well, if you have uh, thoughts or feelings about um, this chapter, about anything that we said, about the numerous mistakes that um, I'm sure we made about our our Tolkien lore, you can DM us uh, on us, Twitter. Baby. Yeah, please do. You can DM us at. Uh, 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 Frodo lives pod on Twitter. You can email us at Frodo lives pod at gmail.com. Um, and we will be happy to share your thoughts on, uh, uh, on our next words from the fellowship section. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, what are we reading next week? We are reading the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring chap book one, chapter two, the shadow of the past. Okay. Okay. Well, you you will find us uh, same place, same pod, same RSS, talking about that chapter next week. In the meantime, uh, if you enjoyed our, our kind of first foray into this text and you'd like to help us out, um, what can they do for us, Jim? They could leave us a five-star, 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 five-star review on iTunes, on Audible, wherever you get your podcast jollies on, just please leave us a five-star review. It helps us out in a big way. And it also it helps us reach other listeners who like you enjoy this podcast, hopefully. And we and we want to spread this out to as many people as possible because I think it's we all if you're here and you like Tolkien and you want to be a part of this community, it's nice to have more members in it, you know? Yeah, yeah, and th- we we do intend this to be kind of like a book club. So, yes, um, yes, we want people to read along with us, and we're hoping people are reading along with us. And uh, you're getting in at the ground level if you're listening to this near release. So, uh, share it, spread it around to your friends, post links on Facebook for us. You know, um, don't keep it secret. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not running ads on this. Like we're not doing this as like a, a financial thing. It's something we're doing because we love the content and we're we're just kind of looking for a, a, an excuse to talk about it. And we want to bring as many voices as we can into the conversation. So if you have ever talked to a friend who's like, I, I would love to you know get into something, but they don't have the ability to go back and like get into the reaction time. Like this is uh, this is that's what's great about book clubs and stuff like this. Like you can share the experience with us here on this podcast and send us in your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's it. Wow. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our first episode. We're looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Goodbye for the present. Take care of yourselves. You're old enough and perhaps wise enough. The road goes ever on and on.